Well, good evening, everybody. Glad, wow, I came loud and clear tonight. A little, little too loud. There we go. Glad you're here with us tonight, uh, our second Wednesday, as we uh, progress through our Advent series here. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 9 tonight, uh, verses 6 and 7. And you'll say, well, that sounds familiar. I think we were in that last week, and we are. Um, normally at Living Truth, I think you can expect us to do at least a full message on just two verses. Am I right? I think Pastor Michael does it on one verse. I think he did that two Sundays ago. But we are going to one-up it this year. We're doing four messages on just two verses. And Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And you heard Pastor Shane last year, last year, last week. Sorry, that's gone really quick. Uh, last week, talk about the first name of God that is listed there. Wonderful counselor. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the second name, the second attribute, really, and that is mighty God. Now, I will open up and just let you know that I scrapped a good portion of my notes this week as I was preparing. Um, we have, again, as I said, four weeks uh, in these couple of verses, and it's a great time to look at really the whole context of Isaiah, even as a whole book, but uh, even specifically uh, in the opening chapters, just what's going on. Uh, in chapter 8 talks about an invasion, uh, the Assyrian army, and then in chapter 9, uh, there's hope given to the people. And so there's, there's a great theme running through that, and I started my, my message working that way, but as I started studying and looking at the name Mighty God, it's a unique one, um, unique in the fact that it combines humanity and deity in one, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And so I decided that this was going to be slightly more topical in nature, and we're going to look tonight at really the deity of Christ. We're going to look at his humanity and his deity and how those coexist uh, really in, in one form. And I had sort of a, a burden, if you will. You know, Ephesians 4 talks about uh, the purpose of the church and uh, even specific roles and leaders within the church and what they are given for. It says this in uh, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with that. You've heard that verse uh, preached here before. And so really one of the primary roles of pastors and teachers is to equip the flock, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But it goes on here in verse 13, it says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness in Christ, so that, in verse 14, we may be no longer children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, to which is it equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I really felt a burden this week to make this message really about equipping the flock, equipping the church. We can dive into, you know, these different names and, and what they mean, but if we're not equipped and if we're not building up one another in the faith, then we can come and sit and study and, and learn all we can, but there needs to be a purpose. There needs to be the end goal. So we're going to be going through a lot of scripture tonight, so I will say to get your Bibles ready. Let me also say, if, if you're someone who takes notes, I would encourage you to do so tonight. If you are not someone who normally takes notes, let me encourage you to try. 
Uh, we actually have pens and little message note sheets in the back on that back little table when you walk in. Feel free to go up and, and get one if you'd like. Uh, or if you want to take notes, you want to do it on, on your phone. Whatever that looks like, I made it available. I'm not saying that because what I'm going to share is so great tonight, but because the truths in Scripture are really that great. And if we are equipped Christians, if we are equipped believers, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to be able to defend the faith. And so we're going to look at a core Christian doctrine tonight, the deity of Christ. A few days ago, I was uh, listening to a message while driving in the car, and in that message, they referenced a survey that recently came out. It was September of this year. It's called the 2022 State of Theology Survey. And they polled evangelicals who are defined by Lifeway Research as people who strongly agreed with these four following statements. That the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It's very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Thirdly, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And lastly, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So those that responded to this poll were evangelicals that agreed with each of those four statements, with really all of those four statements. There were over 700 people that responded to the survey, all of which, again, claiming to be evangelicals. And here's some of what the findings were. When asked, God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake, 95% of evangelicals strongly agree. It's great to hear. Next, the Trinity, that there is one God and three distinct persons. 96% of the evangelicals agreed on that as well. When asked this question, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, but also Judaism, Islam, and the rest. 46% strongly agree. And only 32% strongly disagree. These are evangelicals that, that believe that the Bible is the highest authority in their life. 32% would believe that the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, is okay. The Holy Spirit can tell me to do something which is forbidden in the Bible. 25% strongly agree that the Holy Spirit can lead you to do something against the Bible. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. A total of 57% either strongly agree or agree. Well over half. That everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65% agree or strongly agree. Worshiping alone with one's family is a valid replacement for regular church attendance. 54%, again over half, either agree or strongly disagree. That Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 38% strongly agree, and only half strongly disagree. The rest fall somewhere in the middle. And while this one question was the prerequisite, one of the prerequisite questions to if they were an evangelical or not, they expressly asked the question, do you believe that the Bible is the highest authority in your life? And again, a full 99% said yes to that. So something doesn't compute, does it not? 99% of people say that they strongly agree that the Bible is the foundation and the authority of their life. Yet on all the other doctrinal points, they seem to have gotten wrong. 
They seem to have been carried about by crafty schemes or deceitfulness, as it talks about in Ephesians 4. And that is the necessary uh, reason that we have good, solid teaching and that we need to understand our Bibles and what's in it. So tonight, as we uh, go into chapter, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 6, I'm going to ask that you stand. We're just going to read one verse, but let's stand anyway. As we're reading about a mighty God, I think we should be able to get up off our feet uh, if we're able, and we should read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. You may be seated, and let's pray, church. Father, thank you so much um, for the opportunity that we have to gather in your house tonight, Lord. May your spirit be here with us. May it lead us and guide us. Father, this tonight is your message, not mine, and I just ask that you would speak through me to your people. Father, may the words from my mouth, may they first be pleasing in your sight, but may they be edifying, may they be equipping, may they help us all to grow together until we attain uh, the full knowledge and unity in Christ. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So a fourfold name is given here. Uh, to this king, to this child, this son that will be born, or future king, I could say. And this idea can be referred to as a a titulary, a a reference of titles, four different ones that are given here um, to this, uh, this coming child. Again, this was written some 700 years before his birth. In the ancient Near East, it was actually pretty common that titles would be given uh, to someone that uh, ascended a throne or became a king or, or any sort of uh, regal position. And they would often uh, talk about attributes or characteristics of that person or maybe even allude to what uh, the people would hope that that person or king or ruler would be able to attain to. They would bestow these names. And so this is actually, ironically, not out of character with what we would have seen, not just in Israel, but specifically in the other uh, regions and the other people groups around that area. So Pastor Shane took us through Wonderful Counselor last week, and tonight we're specifically focusing on just this verse of Mighty God. But these are more than just names. Uh, as I mentioned, these are more like characteristics. They, they tell us about this person, really. The first two uh, can be associated with his name, Emmanuel, God with us. Um, those first two, Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. The latter two, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace, talk a little bit more about uh, his future and his rule and what he, he will eventually bring about. But mighty God definitely seems to stand out. Humanity and deity, just in that, in that one section. The deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. This one verse I have in my notes contains perfect proof of the deity of the Messiah, as well as the doctrine of the incarnation. The word God ascribed to someone who is a child born absolutely clinches the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus, while a mere human baby, was also called the mighty God. There's a little reference here in what we're going to get into tonight and talking about is what's known as the hypostatic union. And that is to say that God was fully man, or excuse me, Jesus was fully man and he was fully God in the same person at the same time. Hypostasis is a Greek word, and it means substance or existence. And so a hypostatic union is this union of these two substances, these two existences, these two natures, really, that simultaneously coexisted in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. 
The name mighty God are the two Hebrew words El Gibor. El Gibor. The word translated mighty is the Hebrew word Gibor, and it means strong or, or mighty. Often in times relating to a strong warrior, someone that was maybe successful in battle. And as it relates to really this whole Isaiah 9 chapter and even this, this larger section in Isaiah, it foreshadows this, this ruling warrior king that would come. Now, he didn't do that in his first coming. We know he'll do that in his second coming. The people were expecting that in his first coming, but instead they got the humble servant, not this ruling warrior king. But that's really what's alluded to here. But yet the word translated God, and that's the Hebrew word El, you could write it as just E-L, that name is absolutely divine. There's no question about it. It is the most common name used in the Old Testament to talk about God. And when it's combined, or added, I should say, to Jesus Christ, our Savior, it reveals that he's an omnipotent warrior who will someday return to earth to slay all his enemies with the sword that comes from his mouth that talks about in Revelation. I would say my original intent was to go down that line a little bit more, but I really felt this tug to focus on the deity of Christ. Why don't you flip just one chapter ahead to your Bible, chapter 10, and let's look at verse 20. Isaiah 10, verse 20. It says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. There's those same two words, El Gabor, the mighty God. Here it's referring to God himself, God the Father. But back in Isaiah 9, 6, it's referring to Jesus Christ. So let's break down these two natures. Let's look at this human nature and then this divine nature of Jesus as a person. We'll start with his humanity. Verse 6 in and of itself tells us that a child will be born and a son will be given. Those Hebrew words are descriptive of an actual child or an actual son. There's no hidden meaning behind it. It's talking about a physical child, a physical person that is to be born. It's, it's the word for actual humans. And it refers to God coming in the flesh. When we see the word son, we can think back two chapters. Flip back with me, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. This famous prophecy that the son, the Messiah, would be born to a virgin. It was later fulfilled in, in Luke 2, and we'll read through that a little bit more. But it refers to the fact that God would literally come down, that he would be incarnate, that he would take on the form of a man, born of a virgin, but take on the likeness of a man. John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word is form of sarx, S-A-R-X. And again, it refers to literal flesh of a human body. There's no other hidden meaning there. God literally took on human flesh to dwell among us. In Luke 2, verse 6 and 7, it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, speaking of Mary. And she gave birth to her firstborn son 
and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. This verse, again, just gives a, a natural story of a natural birth of a true human being. I can't overstress this enough, and we're going to continue to look at these verses that talk about the humanity of the Lord Jesus. Later on in Luke, it talks about the fact that the child, referring to him, grew up in nature and in stature. It said that he increased in wisdom over his years. He grew up from a child to an adult, much like all of us in this room have done. Well, much more than much more of us. I guess all of us have done that at some point, unless you're still a child in the room. You've grown up from a child to an adult as a natural human. But then scripture goes on further to show us instances of Jesus' humanity. It shows us that he had limitations, that he had weaknesses. These are verses we're all aware of. John 4, 6 says that he grew tired. He grew tired. John 19, 28, he got thirsty. Matthew 4, 2, he became hungry. Even on his way to the crucifixion, after being beaten, he was too weak to carry the cross, too weak to carry that burden. And Simon the Cyrene was called out and he, asked, he was asked, was told really to help Jesus carry the burden of that cross. In his humanity, Jesus couldn't fulfill that portion. But then Jesus also rose from the dead in a physical human body. Another important part of this, this doctrine. He showed the disciples that he had a physical body. Post-resurrection, he showed them the holes in his hands and his feet and his side. Luke 24, 39 says, For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He was telling that he was not just a mere spirit. He arose bodily from the grave, brothers and sisters. And he even ate bread and fish after the resurrection. John 21, there's proof that we get to eat in heaven. Amen? Post-resurrection, we will get to eat and enjoy food. But these verses show us more than the fact that he had a human mind and a human body and human emotions. He was like us in every way possible except one. And what is that? That he was without sin. Hebrews 4.15. Tempted at all things as we are and yet without sin. So why is it important that we know that Jesus was fully man? What's an important part of this for our faith? Galatians 4 4 through 5 tells us this, but when the time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. He had to be a man so that he could be sort of the forerunner, you will, for us, said that he had to be born under the law to redeem those under the law, just like we were. No one else can be born under the law. There's no angel, there's no animal or other creature it's only a man, those created in the image of God, that are born under the law. And so Jesus had to be born as a man to fulfill that, to come under the law. He had to be a man, and he had to shed his blood for the remission of sins. We know that the blood of bulls and goats will never take away that. Do we not? It had to be this perfect God-man. He was the only one that could provide the permanent remission of sins and forgive us of our sins. We needed a mediator between God and us. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Not the spirit, not some ethereal being. The man, Christ Jesus, is the mediator. 
He had to be a man to sympathize with us as a high priest. Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help all those who are also being tempted. He also needed to be a man to be our example. 1 John 2.6 says, whoever says he abides in him, in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He needed to be a man so that we can follow, that we have that example. Romans 8.29 tells us, so that we might be conformed into the image of the Son. We can only be conformed into the image of something that we are like, correct? We can't, we can't change our likeness into something else. But Jesus, the God-man, was the one that we were able to be conformed into his image. And we also run the race set before us, just as Jesus did. We look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. And maybe even most importantly, his humanity is the fact that it was him in bodily form when he resurrected that became the first fruits of the resurrection for us. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection body of Jesus is the pattern, if you will, for our resurrection bodies. We have a physical body now like Adam, but we will one day have a glorified, resurrected body just like Jesus Christ after his resurrection. Now, there's a lot of overwhelming proofs, if you will, and even historical evidence, apart from the Bible, that Jesus existed as a man. We know that many people will, will often concede, well, yeah, you know, Jesus came to the earth and, and he was a man, he was a, a good moral person, he was a good teacher, some might even concede uh, a, a prophet. That's something that we see fairly often today. We don't have a large group of the population that would just deny the fact that this man ever existed, Right? But we do see that a little bit in the New Testament. If you remember on Wednesday nights, I don't know, this goes back probably a year or more, we went through the book of 1 John. And we looked at some of the heresies going on in that day. And those were namely Gnosticism and Docetism. Those were the two that we really looked at. Gnosticism, this sort of secret knowledge. But, but Docetism is a belief that uh, originates from the, the Greek word dokeo, something like D-O-K-E-O. And that means to seem. And part of this heresy that was taught was that it only seemed like God came down in the form of Jesus, in the form of a man. He maybe looked sort of like a man, but, but it wasn't really God dwelling in a human body. And, and one of the core beliefs, sort of, of this heresy um, was that anything earthly, anything human was inherently evil. So there was no way that God could condescend and take the form of a human body. It just couldn't happen. There was no way. And that was one of their, their beliefs. One of the other beliefs was that when Jesus was baptized, that the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove and resided with him as he did his ministry, miracles and teachings and healings. But then at the crucifixion, that spirit departed from him and that there was this weird separation. And that, brothers and sisters, is just most certainly not what the Bible teaches. So let's get into a little bit more of that as we continue along. Now, John addressed this heresy, if you will, in chapter four, verse two. He says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's a direct rebuke to this heresy that was going on at that time. Every spirit 
that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. So again, arguably, one of the biggest objections we hear today is that Jesus was a man, but, but just a man. He couldn't be God. Couldn't happen. You know, Jews believe this. Muslims believe this. There's a lot of various cults and uh, obscure sects or forms of Christianity that they would say they're Christianity, that they would believe this. That Jesus was a good moral teacher. Again, as I said, maybe, maybe a prophet. But certainly he could not be God in the flesh. And so let's look at the deity of Christ. This is going to be more the scriptural proof of the deity of Christ. We could be on and on and on. This could be weeks long of a message. I joked in the beginning that we're doing four messages on two verses. This could be probably an entire uh, semester of college, per se, just focusing on this one topic that we're trying to condense into 45 minutes, maybe 50 or 55, but somewhere around there. So here's the proof, if you will. The word God, theos, in Greek is used of Christ in the New Testament. It's a word normally used of God the Father many, many times. But there are specific references to Jesus Christ as theos. Carries the idea of a, of a transcendent being, of something worthy of, of reverence, worthy of worship. That's what this word theos means. In the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, theos is the word for the Hebrew word El. I talked about that in the beginning with Isaiah 9.6, that El is the most common word for God in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew Old Testament. But in the Greek translation of that many years later, theos is, is the word that would be used. So it would be unmistakable to any reader, uh, early, uh, an early New Testament reader, that whenever this word theos appeared, that it would be talking about the God of the Old Testament, the creator, the sustainer of the universe. This wasn't just some new, new word that came up. This was referring to God. Turn to John 1.1 1, 1 with me. I said we're going to be flipping through a lot of scripture here. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, theos, and the word was God, theos. The word is referring to Jesus, and again, this could be a whole other teaching just on this one particular verse. But the word was God. Jesus was God. Flip over to chapter 20 of John. 27. Chapter 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do, you not, do not disbelieve, but believe. And what did Thomas answer him? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Turn to Romans 9, verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Continue turning to your right. Titus, the second chapter. Titus 2, verse 13. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews, the first chapter. Hebrews 1, verse 8. This is a quotation of Psalm 45, 6. God speaking, but of the Son, he says, of God's Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, speaking of the Son. God the Father speaks to the Son and calls him God in this verse. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And finally, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 to 2. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by righteousness and our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Now, those are pretty much the New Testament verses that sum up at least the word theos, the New Testament verses that apply theos to Jesus Christ specifically. But we can go a little bit further than that. Actually, let me even go back. So theos applied to Jesus at least this number of times. There's a few others that are maybe a little bit more obscure, but those ones for sure seem to kind of seal the deal or clinch it. The only Old Testament verse, by the way, that uses that word, it's El in the Old Testament in, in Hebrew. It's not theos for Greek, but El. The only time that word is ascribed to Jesus in the entire Old Testament, you know where it is? Isaiah 9.6, we just read it. It's the only time in the Old Testament that God, the name of God is specifically prescribed to Jesus. But many more times in the New Testament as we just saw. Then, secondly, there's the word kurios in Greek. K-Y-R-I-O-S or K-U-R-I-O-S. This Greek word has a number of different meanings. It can refer to on a more uh, lower level or basic level, just something like uh, Lord in a lowercase l fashion, like a, a master, if you were a servant talking to your master. It could also even just be uh, a way to address an individual, much like we would say sir. You might have a young child address an older adult male as sir or, or, or ma'am. And so in that way, Lord, Kyrios, would be used. But specifically, um, it, it is used of Jesus several times. Now, in the Septuagint, again, in the, um, in the Greek interpretation, Greek translation of the Old Testament, Kyrios is used over 7,000 times to talk about God. And when you see in your Old Testament, Lord, in lowercase, but caps, L-O-R-D, that's referring to most often Yahweh. And you've heard this before for those of you that have been around a while. But that refers to the covenant name of God, the word Lord in all caps. And that is the Greek word kurios. So let's look at a few references. Let's turn to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1. Luke 1.43, this is Elizabeth speaking to Mary. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? We could say that Elizabeth, speaking under the power of the Holy Spirit, is referring to the unborn baby in Mary's womb and is referring to him as Lord. 
So we know emphatically that this wouldn't be the, the common uh, version where you'd refer to someone as sir. Why would an adult woman be referring to an unborn child as sir? It just doesn't make sense. This is unmistakably referring to Jesus as God. Flip over one chapter, Luke 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We could read it like this today. Today, a baby in Bethlehem has been born who is your Savior and your Messiah, and who is also God himself. Matthew 22, you don't have to turn there, says 2241 if you're taking notes. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You have to see the uh, humor in this, right? So he's talking like in the third person to the Pharisees. Hey, this, this Christ guy, it's actually me, but what do you think about this Christ guy? What do you think of him? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. And he responds, and how is it then that David in the spirit, calls him Lord. And this is a quote from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And what God the Father is saying to God the Son, this is David's Lord, Jesus. God the Father saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand, but he calls him Lord. And the Pharisees know exactly what Jesus means by this because it says in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Safe to say he shut them up, right? Now we could be here for weeks literally going through the verses for Kyrios. We looked at Theos and Kyrios. There are many, many more. But beyond just these uh, claims to deity that are in the actual words, we see a few other things about the nature of Jesus, about his attributes. The opening verses of Hebrews are also declarative of uh, the divinity of Jesus. As long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That word nature is hypostasis. We talked about a hypostatic union at the beginning. The actual nature of God. There's two natures, excuse me, of Jesus. Two natures in one. But he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Turn with me, if you will, to John 8. John 8, beginning in verse 56. Jesus speaking says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Someone said it, I heard it. I am. Now this is an interesting one. Scholars debate over what was actually said here. Now remember, this is written in Greek. 
I am, the words ego a me, but this was probably not spoken in Greek. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Most likely, scholars would say that this conversation happened in what language? In Hebrew. So speaking in Hebrew, he says, I am. Back in Exodus 3, verse 14, God speaks of his covenant name. I am that I am. Eye, asher, eye. I am that I am. It may be that Jesus actually here used one of those words, I am, eye. He might have even said the whole entire title. So why do we think that? Well, in the next verse, 59, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus hid him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. Now the Pharisees didn't pick up stones because they just weren't happy or they just didn't like the guy. They were picking up stones to stone him because he committed the sin of blasphemy, because he made himself out to be God or to be like God. So it could possibly be that Jesus actually used that covenant name right here. We don't know. That's conjecture. I'll leave that to you, and you can study it more on your own. But it's interesting when we look at some of the original languages, right? We go back to think that, yeah, it's written in Greek, but that conversation most likely didn't happen in that Greek language. It it adds a whole new meaning for us. Flip over to John 10, just a couple chapters ahead. Verse 22, we're going to see that again. It says, at the time of the Feast of Dedication... That's uh, referring to Hanukkah, by the way. Took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. We'll skip down to verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. And once again, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. Much like with the word theos, we could, or the word kyrios, we could be here for weeks studying. We talked about John 1.1 1, 1 and 1.14. We could dive way more into that. We could think of verses in Revelation that talk about Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega. We can even look at the title of the Son of Man, Daniel 7. That could be an, an interesting topic to dive into. Or even just the Son of God, that name was used many times throughout the New Testament, but there's a lot that, that seemed to apply to Jesus as God. I'll wrap it up with Colossians 1. Actually, let's turn there. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible. 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Flip one chapter ahead, chapter 2, verse 9. Just another short repetition of what we've covered. But it says, for in him, speaking of Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so, brothers and sisters, don't, don't let any critic of the Bible ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. How often have we heard that in our society? Pretty often. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Hopefully you were taking notes because now you have a nice sheet of paper or a note on your phone that you can show them. Well, actually, here's just a few you can scroll through. Not if you have a paper, you might have to flip it over because paper doesn't scroll. But anyway, so beyond the direct quotes, the direct names given by both God himself and by others ascribed to God, talked about some of the other characteristics. His omnipotence, that is to say, his divine power. He calmed storms, he healed the sick, the blind, the lame. He multiplied loaves and fishes, he turned water into wine. We just simply don't have time to get into these verses. We have his omniscience, that is to say, his divine knowledge, that he knew the thoughts and the intents of man and that he knew all things. John 16, 30, his disciples told him that they knew that he knew all things. That's John 16, 30. And then his omnipresence, that's to say that he is everywhere at the same time. Now that was one of the attributes that wasn't fully realized in a sense because he did take on the form of a man. But nevertheless, he also said that wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. And at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, he says, behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so just as we discussed with the humanity side of Jesus, that there's some false teachings and things associated with that, there's many more that are associated with false teachings about the fact that Jesus wasn't divine, that Jesus wasn't God. One that has been on my mind and heart a little bit more lately uh, is something called the kenosis theory. The kenosis theory is something that sprang up probably in the late 1800s in Europe. So this is a very recent heresy, if you will. The kenosis theory is really based off of Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. You're probably familiar with that verse. That word emptied is the word kenoo, kenoo, K-E-N-O-O, and that's where we get the idea kenosis theory. And it's the fact that, sorry, I said that wrong. It is not a fact. It is the belief, it is the heretical belief that Jesus while on earth, emptied himself of his divinity. That he voluntarily laid aside divinity and was just a man. 
So why do I bring this up? Well, I think it was two Sundays ago, Pastor Michael talked a little bit about the New Apostolic Reformation. How many have heard about this, not from this church, but outside, have you heard about the New Apostolic Reformation? A few hands. So I'm glad I'm sharing it. I would say, look into it so that you can see what it is. Don't look into it to follow it, but look into it to see what it is. And one of the reasons that I want to share this is that um, pastors are called to warn the flock, to guard the flock. And this really is a heretical belief that is really picking up steam and speed. Like I said, this came about in the late 1800s, but it's becoming more and more prevalent. And it really is one of the main teachings, uh, this kenosis theory, is one of the main teachings within New Apostolic Reformation. There's many other heretical beliefs, but this is the main one. We'll get into that in a second. Now, I want to say that the word kenoo does mean to empty, but it means to voluntarily lay aside. That would be maybe the best way to put it, to voluntarily lay aside. And that's probably the more correct meaning um, of that. If you have King James or New King James, it'll actually read that he made himself of no reputation rather than saying he emptied himself. He made himself of no... Yeah, he made himself of no reputation. Now, proponents of the theory suggest that Jesus laid aside some of his divine attributes in order to come to earth or even to go to the cross. But there's really no other place in the New Testament that talks about this. It's been pretty much the general consensus for the last 1,800 years prior to when this theory started um, that that wasn't the case. That Jesus emptied himself, he humbled himself simply by coming down from heaven and taking on the form of a man. But when he did that during the incarnation, he didn't empty himself. He didn't get rid of his divinity. That's just something that he's not able to do. He is fully divine, fully man in the same person. But what he did was lay aside the privileges, if you will, that are associated with divinity. He willingly went to the cross. He didn't have to do that. But he laid aside those privileges, actually, and it even says, for the joy set before him. The emptying includes a change of role and status, but not of essential nature. That's a key thing to keep in mind. The emptying includes change of role and status, but not essential attributes or nature. So again, you say, well, why do you bring this up? And this new apostolic reformation has been something that has been gaining speed a little bit. I want to read a quote um, from a book of one of the teachers. I'm actually not going to name the teacher or the book. And that's because this belief is held by pretty much all of the people that associate with the new apostolic reformation. But here's just one quote. Talking about Jesus, it says, he performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God. And then ellipses, dot, dot, dot. Not as God. Jesus performed miracles, signs, and teachings as a man in right relationship with God, but not as God. So why do they teach that? Why is this kenosis theory uh, something that's a part of their teaching? Well, they definitely believe in these miraculous signs and miracles and, and healings. And I think many of us would as well. But we would say that those are done at the, the sovereign will of God, that he would choose who he wants to heal, when he wants to heal, what sign he would want to perform. 
But under the New Apostolic Reformation, people are actually taught that if you have enough faith, you can do all of these things. You have to have enough faith and you have to be under the authority of one of these so-called and, and really self-proclaimed apostles within the movement. So they bestow the title upon themselves of apostle and you have to be in good standing under their leadership and you have to have enough faith, which is pretty subjective, is it not? How do you determine if you have enough faith to perform a miracle or a healing or a miraculous sign? And then when that kind of thing doesn't happen, unfortunately, you can just fall back on, well, I guess you didn't have enough faith. That's why you're sick. That's why you didn't get healed. That's why that prayer didn't work. And I know you heard that a couple weeks ago from Pastor Michael and you heard it from me. And I'm not saying that to say that that's a huge agenda of ours here at Living Truth, but I will say that it is growing. I, I hear more and more from people outside of this fellowship that have heard about this and, and this teaching is really growing. So I say that just to warn you and I'll leave it at that. So we've looked at deity, we've looked at humanity. And as we wind down, let's look at the personal application. What is this for us? Well, the mighty God, El Gibor, is, is much more than just this, this supreme being that sits up in the heavens and is unconcerned with our affairs, with the affairs of man. We're told in Isaiah 9-6 that he was a child born and a son given. But what does it say? It says that the gift of the child is for us. For us, that's for me and for you. This child was a gift for us. You've often heard Pastor Michael say that one of the, the reasons that he, uh, you know, almost came to faith, if you will, among others, but he realized that his God entered into his pain. And that's really what happened. The mighty God condescended, he humbled himself, he took on the likeness of man, and he came down into our pain. He was on a rescue mission to save us and to reconcile us back to the Father. That was the whole purpose of his coming, his first coming. The whole purpose. It's for you and it's for me. The mighty God, El Gabor, he became Emmanuel, that is God with us. He came for us. Isaiah 7, 14, we read earlier, says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And in the fulfillment of that prophecy, Luke's gospel tells us that an angel, Gabriel, came to visit Mary, a virgin, and gave her the good news that she would bear a child. And this is really an important piece of the whole puzzle of this humanity and deity of Christ, that it was God and man in one person. Matthew 1 verse 20 tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin, but that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was in this way, this way alone, that he could be fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, but conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to read from a commentary because it's worded much better than I could put it. If we think for a moment of other possible ways in which Christ might have come to earth, none of them would so clearly unite humanity and deity in one person. It probably would have been possible for God to create Jesus as a complete human being in heaven, 
and to send him to descend from heaven to earth without the benefit of any human parent. But then it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are, nor would he be part of the human race that physically descended from Adam. On the other hand, it probably would have been possible for God to have Jesus come into the world with two human parents, both a father and a mother, and with his full divine nature miraculously united to his human nature at some point in his life. But then it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus was fully God, since his origin was like ours in every way. When we think of these two possibilities, it helps us understand how God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ, so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother, and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. That very important mix of humanity and deity was absolutely necessary because salvation comes from the Lord. That's Jonah 2, verse 9. Salvation can only come from the Lord. It could come from an infinite God. It couldn't come from a finite man. It couldn't come from merely a human. It had to come from God himself. And the fact that salvation of the Lord is even in his name, Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. God saves. And because only someone truly and fully God could be that mediator between God and man. If Jesus is not fully God, we have no salvation and ultimately no Christianity. It is no accident that throughout human history, those groups that have given up belief in the full deity of Christ have not remained long within the Christian faith, but have soon drifted in toward the kind of religion represented by Unitarianism. 1 John 2, verse 23, gives a stern warning to those who do not uh, follow Christ, and really specifically those who deny Christ. And he says that no one who denies the Son has the Father. And as we are in the Advent season and we look back to the first coming of the Messiah, which has already happened, but then we look ahead to the second coming of Jesus to rule and to, to reign forever, the question that has to be applied to us, all of those in this room, all of us that are watching online or listening later is, do you have him and do you know him? Do you have the correct view of who God is, fully God and fully man? And really, it's a, a beautiful gift. This is a season of gift giving, is it not? Our Western culture has way over commercialized what this season is about, but it's about gift giving. And our God has given us, our God has given you the greatest gift ever in his son, in his son, Jesus. Jesus said that through him was the exclusive access to the father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. And there is salvation found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, Acts 4. So the question again for us is, do you know him? Do you have that salvation? Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for the beautiful gift that you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ. This God-man who came down on a saving mission to redeem us, to restore us, to reconcile us back to you, Father. What an amazing gift, Lord, something that uh, I know we can't fully comprehend here on this side of heaven. But nevertheless, we are thankful. We are so thankful for what you have done for us and what you have given us, Father. Thank you for sending Jesus, the God-man, fully man, fully God, able to satisfy all of the requirements of the law for salvation. Thank you, Lord, for that free and precious gift. And if there's anyone that has not accepted that gift, there's anyone that hasn't been uh, touched by that power, by that saving power, Lord, I, I would pray that you would come into their lives, into their hearts, their minds, and I pray that they would turn to you. I would pray that they would put their salvation in you. Your name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. God saves. So if you've never cried out to God before, if you've never asked him to save you, it's really a simple prayer. But beyond that, it's a realization of the sin in your life, and it's a, a repentant act. It's turning away from that sin and turning toward Christ this mighty God who came and died for you, the God of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, sustainer of all things, that entered down, humbled himself to come to this earth for you and for me. So we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you for this night. I pray that we would truly be equipped with your word, Father, that this wouldn't be something that we come and listen to and stuff the notes in our Bible and never look at them again, Lord. But I pray that this would have a ripple effect, that we would be able to better defend our faith, that we would be better able to share the good news of who you are with others, especially at this Advent season, Lord. Let that be on our hearts and minds, that we want to reach out to others. So thank you again for this night, Lord. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.